Go ahead, Ray. You! You worthless piece of slime! You ignorant, disgusting clown! Nothing but an unstable short chain molecule! It's the stuff. It's like pure concentrated evil. It's all flowing right to this spot. Material devolution has begun. Welcome back to the podcast. We are here in San Diego. It is May the 2nd, 2015. Another beautiful day. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing good. Shooting a commercial outside. I got to run out there and do that after we get done with this. But uh, we got another good story here. We're going to talk about the Baltimore riots, Freddie Gray, and everything that's going on on the East Coast right now. Uh, we just could not ignore this topic. Yeah, it seems like uh, this is something that's going to be covered by everyone. We actually had a podcast a few weeks ago, Good Cop, Bad Cop, which was about the Walter Scott uh, shooting in South Charleston, no, North Charleston, South Carolina, another incident of, you know, uh, a, a black man dying due to police actions that's reverberating the news. So this one was kind of unavoidable because it took things to a further level. We've seen citywide riots, national attention again, and Every month there's a new story, so we're going to try to change the format of the uh, the podcast up a little and give you a little bit more info on the story before we get into the details. That way you can get a little more looped in into our line of thinking because we always cover the story ahead of time. We read as much as we can about it, so I know we can kind of jump from point to point at times. We want to get you looped in on the points we're making, so Matt's going to do a nice little cover of the story from his angle, and then we'll, we'll see where it takes us. Yeah, Devin, so I wanted to uh, do a timeline of the events that happened on April 12th because there are a lot of nuances to this case. And, and, and you know, from the fact that all he did was make eye contact with Lieutenant Brian Rice on the bike at 8.39 a.m., he was walking in a neighborhood with his buddy, made eye contact, and they both ran away. And then... Gray surrenders about two blocks away, and that's where we see the video pickup of the six officers on him and dragging him to the paddy wagon. Um, 8.42, uh, the, wag the wagon's requested. Uh, you know, at about five minutes later, uh, the officer, Caesar Gray, who's the driver, he thinks he's, uh, that Gray's acting irate in the back. Uh, they make a couple of stops. One of them was undisclosed now that we know. It was a stop that was undisclosed before where they actually check on Freddie Gray, but they don't administer any, any medical attention to him. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so they, when he was acting irate in the back, they said that they, they brought him out and they shackled him and then they threw him on the floor. And so this is actually against uh, Baltimore police policy as well, where the, 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 the rider in the back needs to be restrained, needs to be you know, locked in so he doesn't injure himself, so these things don't happen. Um, you know, he finally, they, they, they get him to the, to the, to the precinct, uh, medic is called, uh, they determine he's in cardiac arrest, he's taken into shock trauma, April 19th, Freddie Gray dies uh, a week later, from his injuries uh, at the hands of the officers. A week later, I thought it was like later that ne that next day. I thought April nineteenth. April nineteenth. Yeah, yeah. So a week later. So he was. I mean, he was. He was, in critical, he was, he was like in critical condition on life support the next day. Right? I thought. Didn't he go to surgery? They yeah, rushed him yeah. Shock surgery? trauma. Yes. Yeah. Shock trauma. Eighty percent severed spinal cord. So this story has tons of nuance. There's a lot of rabbit holes to go down. I'd like to start with the beginning, Matt, because uh, as you said, this is unique in that. Most people wouldn't think 
how this case started is a crime. Because the, the article I read had a great intro line, which was, it began with a look. Patrolling <laughs> Baltimore's impoverished Sandtown, Winchester, Harlem Park on the morning of April 12th, Lieutenant Brian Rice locked eyes with Freddie Gray. Gray, 25, who'd grown up in the neighborhood and had a history of drug arrests, began to run. The 41-year-old lieutenant took off after him. So, where was the crime or the probability of crime there? It's literally that a cop and a known, a known criminal looked at each other on the streets. The known criminal took off running. And that was deemed probable cause for arrest. Is that? Well, it's interesting because actually, according to the Supreme Court, that they ruled on uh, January 12, 2000, that uh, it was the case was Illinois versus Wardlow. And they deem that if you're in a bad area that's known for a crime and you run from the police, they can pursue you. What's running from the police, though? You tell you if ask I, me if a cop tells you to stop and then you run, that might constitute running from the police to me. But you're just saying like if a cop looks at me, I'm forced to stand there until he says it's okay. I can do anything. Yeah, and I mean, what's the double-edged sword here? If if you're Freddie Gray, you've been arrested dozens of times for drugs and drug possession and intent to distribute, and you see a bunch of cops around you. Well, hanging out in that area probably means one thing. Those cops are going to come up to you, talk to you, try to arrest you. So it's almost like, well, at least if you run, you've got a chance of getting away and not getting arrested. <laughs> because if you hang out, you're almost guaranteed to be arrested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So they're going to come up to you. They're going to harass you. They're going to ask you questions. And they're going to escalate the situation into a manner that they can formulate an opinion and arrest you. That, that would be... From a young black male's point of view in those neighborhoods, that would be the, their opinion, that that would happen to them. And why would you put yourself in a situation where you're going to get harassed? I mean, basically, you can't be on the street as black male or you're going to be harassed. That, that's the, the status quo that's been set by the police because they've been so aggressive in their pursuit of street enforcement that... Arrests like this aren't unusual. They're actually very typical because Baltimore's, as people might well know, they've had a long, long history of poverty, uh, drug problems. It's a very impoverished city, uh, really, really needs support. And because of this, they've had to institute policies and in policing that are very, very draconian almost. But they reduced crime, you know, or so the statistics showed. But at the same time, the city's also been paying millions in settlements to people who claim they were victims of excessive force. From an article I read, they paid $5.7 over the last four years since 2011 to over 100 people for various incidents of excessive force. 100 wrong, people? Wrongful arrest. 100 people. And, I mean, what they've done to some of these people are crazy. I mean, we're literally talking like slamming grandmothers into walls and breaking their shoulders. This one grandmother... Uh, she was wrongfully detained and arrested, and the officer slammed her into a wall. What did she do? Dislocated her shoulder. Uh, her son Her son was shot. She called the police, uh, and they showed up, and they didn't believe her that he got shot outside. They, they thought he got shot inside the house and something happened. 
and they were trying to come inside. She had some pit bulls inside. She didn't want there to be an incident. Dogs attacked. The dog gets shot. So when the she's cop, trying to protect the officers from the dogs. Exactly. So she asked if they had a warrant. The guy said no. Unlatched the door. Tried to come inside. She relatched it. No, you're not coming in here. He slams her into the wall. Says a bunch of derogatory things to her. Her shoulders in a ton of pain. He handcuffs her. Another cop comes by. Uh, she complains to him, and they let her go. She files a report uh, because she says the shoulder was broken. She can't sleep, all these things. She finally gets a settlement for like $96,000. A few months later, six months later, she's dead, natural causes. That's how old this lady is. Wow. We're talking about like slamming grandmothers into walls because we want warrantless searches. Uh-huh. Because, we, because we think they're alive when we respond to people being <clears throat> shot. Because we're for medical above, treatment. Because they're above the law. They just feel like they operate in a way where whatever they're doing They get the benefit of the doubt. Whatever they're doing is the right decision at that time. Uh-huh. You know? It's, right. it's funny, it's like there's all these actions put in place where it's like when it applies to you or me, this is the law. Like, hey, if this guy shouldn't have run, this is the law. Right. But if it applies to me, like, hey, you don't, you need a warrant to come in here. Well, well that doesn't that, that doesn't apply to me in this situation. <laughs> I, I can, I'm going to use my judgment in this case and say, yeah, I don't need a warrant. Right. You know? But for you, you always need to apply the letter of the law at all times. So it's a very double-edged sword. So what we're bringing it back to is that they have a history of acting outside of the law or the regulations which govern them in this city. A hundred people in four years that filed a complaint and actually won a lawsuit. So how many are out there either remain silent uh, because they felt like they didn't have a leg to stand on or whatever. So Freddie Gray gets arrested by six people for making eye contact with a lieutenant on a bicycle, runs away, two blocks later gets pounced on by six officers. They throw him in a paddy wagon. The coroner de- has decided that the bolt from the paddy wagon is injured his neck and, and caused a spinal injury. Um, but I'll tell you, Dev, after looking at the video, he didn't look okay going in. He didn't. No, he didn't. He looked uh, the way he was standing, and they were holding him. He, he couldn't stand. He, he could, they drug him. He, there. he couldn't stand. Uh, I mean, that was the theory initially. That was he was injured. They said they were bending him like a pretzel. One of the officers had a knee in his spine and putting all his weight, and they had his feet touching the back of his head. He was like in some like crazy yoga position, literally uh-huh. being bent in half backwards by the arresting officers. So. You know, whatever happened there, it's tough to know. I mean, I'm not arguing with the coroner. He said the bolt caused it. He, had, he has something it, in his it, neck it, that it, looked like it, that. It could, so. it, could, it could have been he was injured there, and then that exacerbated it. Because like you were talking about, what they did to him was they put him in cuffs. They had him basically hogtied. And then they put him unsecured against policy in the back of the truck. This is known, I guess, uh, a rough ride. A rough right? ride. A, a rough ride's the name for it. It's an unsanctioned practice where a prisoner is transported in police custody and they're deliberately unseatbelted and subjected to unsafe driving. Honestly, I hate to admit this, but I was a scout in Iraq, you know, 19 Delta Cavalry Scout, and uh, we had to apprehend people. You know, bad guys. Suspected terrorists. Suspected terrorists. Weapons Insurgents, whatever you want to call it. Right. Insurgents, freedom fighters. Yeah. So this was common practice. 
rough rides were common practice. They weren't called that, but they had blindfolded people in the back of Bradleys, Humvees with four or five people making GIs. people making sharp left turns, hitting the gas. You know, there's not really many street laws in the desert. Not a lot of stop signs. <laughs> not a lot of stop signs and lights out there, from what I've heard. No, no, not many. Um, so this this wouldn't this doesn't surprise me either. Is what I'm getting at. I, I, I've, I've, I've seen this, this practice take place. I hate to admit it. I, I'm, I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> hey, you know, we're all, we're all culpable of things, and it's systematic. It's systematic. I mean, that's like really the thing that gets to me is like it's, it's such a pattern of behavior for how you're treating people that you'd injure somebody during the arrest, and that's not enough. You're still looking at other ways to injure this person. And they claim that it was because, you know, he was flailing, he was spitting, he was acting violently. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. We don't know. So, basically, you're looking to punish him. You're looking to be judge, jury, and executioner. You're looking to be judge, dread. Like, hey, this guy, this guy's trying to assault an officer. Well, I guess it's up to me to assault him right back. Well, let's also remember that they're ruffling, they're roughing this guy up in the back of a van because he had a freaking pocket knife like that they deemed as a switchblade, which wasn't even a switchblade, so the arrest was illegal. It's like fruit from a poisonous tree, right? Or whatever yeah, you and when, when, you, when you go down the, the totem pole, it's just it's, it's crazy. The, or, the order of operations would literally be like, a cop looks at you, chases after you, illegally detains you, Illegally arrest you for something that's not a crime, breaks your back, intentionally batters you with a car as a form of standard police procedure, refuses to give you medical attention repeatedly over the course of time. Yeah, the first was just an inhaler. Then by the time by the time you're in cardiac arrest, now it's time to figure out how we can fix the report so it doesn't show the undisclosed stops. Right. Where we were checking on you and didn't render any aid. So I, there's just a systematic disregard for life, which is something we were talking about, where weeks back we talked about the role of police is to protect and serve. To protect and serve the community, not the police. So if you're going to arrest somebody for breaking the law, it's your responsibility to protect that person you're arresting. Because they're not guilty of anything yet. You haven't convicted them. You're not the jury. You're not sentencing them to anything. You're not the judge. Your role as a police officer is to detain and secure people. So you have a responsibility to every single person you interact with to keep them safe, no matter what they've done, how heinous. Right, but what we also touched on how they how the closing of ranks and of course. the collusion between amongst each other that uh, to get stories right, uh, you know, before it's before they actually make a, a statement as the, the, massa facts the massaging getting, of the story. Yeah, exactly. Smooth it out a little bit. You know, I, I have to I have to say though here that I didn't hear uh, much of that going on. Um, you know, it seemed to me that they admitted negligence pretty quickly. There's other ways negligence pretty quickly. There's other ways to massage the story though. So you know, there's a lot of talking points coming out. Well, of I think that the CNN um, where they they interviewed somebody close to the officers or whatever and they're like well how do you think these officers feel you know they feel just as bad you know their city's burning over this incident and blah blah yeah, let's try, like, let's why, why are you spinning this around like you know, let's talk about this for a second they chased down a 25 year old young man and broke him in half and then chucked him in the back of a van 
I mean, my thing is just, it's that callous disregard for human life that seems systematic. Let's say they chased him down because this is just what they did. Like, I want to see it from the side of the officers. This is behavior that they've been doing for decades. This is how they've been treating people in the community. So it's almost like they're just doing their job. They've been told, hey, you see a suspicious person, they run from you, detain them. They did everything they did. Let's say they didn't even tend to break his back. It just happened by accident. You know, he was rough, he was flailing. I put my knee in his back to hold him down. You know, for whatever reason, his back gave out. It was a freak accident. Or I just used more force than I, meet, I meant to. It was an accidental injury. I could even understand all those things. It's when you have somebody in the back of your car repeatedly telling you they need a medic, they can't breathe. We're going back to like Eric Garner now in New York, the guy who got choked to death, put into cardiac arrest for selling Lucy's, selling loose cigarettes allegedly, saying he can't breathe, he can't breathe. And the police response is to not give you medical assistance. It's Fuck the, your breath. I mean, it's like literally, you're it's like in Oklahoma, right? You're, you're, I can't breathe. Fuck your breath. You might, you might, <laughs> you, it's one thing to injure me intentionally or unintentionally. It's another thing to deny me medical attention. Right. Like that's just, I think it's, it's like you said, judge, jury, and executioner. It, well, you're, you're going to let me die. And, but that might be systematic too. It might be like, Hey, you know, that, that's what, so everybody does. Everyone in the back, one more thug off the street. No, but the, you know, they say they want medical attention. We can't, we can't let our guard down and treat them like a human being because going back there, maybe we let loose the cuffs. He tries to bite us, might be trying to just do this. You can't approach the situation and treat that as a human being. Somebody who's in need of assistance. Like we, we got to pick up this other prisoner. We got to get back to the station in the next 17 minutes. Instead of being like, what would you do anywhere in America if you were walking down the street right. and somebody fell down and said, I can't breathe, help me. Yeah, I know for a fact, it doesn't matter what I was doing, where I was going, wedding, funeral, job interview, this, that. I'd stop what I was doing, get that person medical attention and make sure they were okay. Listen, we all know that there is dangers that are – that 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 take place that when they're, when they are handcuffing and loosening up handcuffs and all the stuff that you said happen, biting, spitting, um, kicking, flailing, all these things do happen. So I don't want to get, you know, caught up in saying that we don't uh, acknowledge that there are risks involved with these things, but where is the empathy and a little bit of common sense when somebody is, you can tell and they should be able to tell because they're in these situations all the time when somebody is really having trouble well that's going to be a big thing in the in the legal ramifications of this because they did charge all the officers which was a big thing you know we had riots for a while protests this that and i think yesterday the uh city district attorney she came out had a press conference they pressed charges against all the six officers and one of the charges was like second degree aggravated murder with like willful disregard for life and legal experts say that's a really tough standard to prove because you have to prove that the officers should have known for a fact that this was a life-threatening injury and they needed to do something. That's going to be very, very difficult bar to prove. So it's funny. It's like they press charges because of these riots, which get people to be peaceful for a little. But did they press charges that set such a high bar for proving that they can't get a conviction? 
Yeah, the one that you speak of is second-degree depraved heart murder with a maximum sentence of uh, 30 years. Yeah, so that, for that legal standard, you've got to prove a callous disregard for human life. And that was Officer Caesar. Yeah, so you, you, knew, you knew for a fact he was dying, and you didn't do anything about it. Well, that could be like, well, I didn't know for a fact he was dying. I thought he was maybe hurt, but I didn't know he was dying. How can you prove that? It's really tough. Yeah, especially beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a threshold it's in, it's in criminal. That's impossible. Court, you know, it's impossible to prove that, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, well, I heard, you know, there's strategies involved with getting convictions, right? And so by charging all six of these officers with some pretty serious crimes, um, you know, two counts of second-degree assault, involuntary manslaughter, two counts of second-degree assault, involuntary manslaughter, misconduct in office. Everybody has um, at least those, um, those charges. It, somebody, they're, they're banking on somebody to flip, right? So if you can charge all of them and somebody is like, wait a minute, I was kind of a, a standby, you know, a watcher in, in this, this thing. I, I really didn't get involved in the apprehension of, of, of Mr. Gray. I was just in the car. While I was, was just in the car. Hey, I was just in the car while he was telling me I couldn't breathe, not was, doing anything about it. It was my beat. You know, some of these guys were on bicycles and things. So not all of them were in the car, right? I wouldn't expect them to be. I wouldn't expect all six of them to get in the van. I would expect that, you know, the van drivers took off and they took the paddy wagon wherever they were going. And then that's why these other guys are charged with, you know, the second degree uh, um, depraved heart murder and the second degree assault and the, you know, manslaughter charge. I can empathize with the difficulty of the situation because it's systematic, which is what we're going to always come back to here. You're put in a position where you're almost forced to let something horrible happen because if you don't do what your other officers are doing, you're breaking the code of brotherhood. Well, it's like what I so, was just talking so about I, with Iraq, if, so right? If, I mean, if, it's if, like I noticed what was going on, and you're just sitting there going, yeah, So, yeah, you're in, you're, in, you're in your Humvee with five of your other fellow recon guys, scouts, and you've got your prisoner in the back, and he's getting bounced around in a rough ride, and nobody else is saying anything. So you know in the back of your head, if you say something, that could compromise your position with your your comrades yeah they, they they might be thinking you care more about this guy who's trying to kill us than yeah. you care about us your guys who have your back uh -huh. we'll remember that next time that seed of doubt in your mind is the most frightening thing possible it's that little bit of fear of what happens if i do something that opposes what everybody else is doing the status quo the status quo so exactly <clears throat> maybe you've got five of these officers with callous disregard, and then there's one officer who actually hears it and wants to do something, but he knows in the back of his head, if I do something, this could undercut my job, could under, undercut my standing between my fellow officers. They might not want to work with me. They might not want to go on patrol. They might think I'm trying to get them investigated by internal uh, IU, internal investigations. But when you're up against it, I'm not willing to go down for these motherfuckers. Of course. Well, that's why, though. You, you put up people systematically so they'll support each other. So when something does happen, guess what? Everyone's got the same story. Uh-huh. You know, what a coincidence. Yep. The, the union lawyer spokesman gets to talk for the police. They get to meet for 10 hours and talk about what their story is. There's no really independent investigation and verification of what happens till long after they've had time to meet and discuss what their story is. I think what's also interesting in this case is, is that you, you have it split down the middle with three white officers and three black officers. And so it kind of really does take the race card out of the equation, right? And, and so how many, how many um, of these talking points can we hear about 
uh, it being a race thing. And, you know, I even saw on Twitter the other day where uh, they posted the pictures of them uh, with the mug shots and uh, somebody was like, wow, I was, I was, I was expecting to see uh, the white devil. Yes. Not three black cops and three white cops. Definitely. Well, it's interesting because we talked about these other incidents in the past where in Ferguson, Missouri with Michael Brown, you had a police force that was 90% white and the community is 90% black. In North Charleston, South Carolina, the police force was, I think, like, the community was 60% black and the police force was 20% black. So you had these very ethnically uh, separated right. There's some communities. Like, the, the police force was completely white and the community was predominantly black. Here, you actually had a majority-minority police department. The majority of the Baltimore Police Department is minorities. It's not white people. Interesting. So that tells us you're right. Isn't about race. It's more about power and perception of authority and poverty than anything. You know, you can take anybody and put them in a position of power and authority, and it doesn't matter if they're a minority anymore. They've now taken on the emblem of the uniform they're wearing. They're not black or white. They're blue. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're wearing this blue uniform. That's what they are now. You 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 become sex. You have no sex. You have no race. You're basically like a, a cog in the wheel. You're considered, you know, uh, a replica once you join a bureaucracy like that. So that tells us you're right. It's not yeah, about in the army. We were green. Green. It's it, it's not about race. It's about the system because the system makes you behave in a certain way that can lead to something like this. And it also exposes that it's about our perception of what's going on. We only hear about this stuff because obviously over the last 10, 15 years. The media has just gotten so much more conductive with everything, with the internet, with the way we're all connected, with Twitter, Everybody with video. Everybody has cameras. Everybody knows everything instantly. Well, an interesting thing I remember reading about this, because I was reading about the cover-ups of, uh, you know, they had, like I said, 100 cases paid out $5.7 million for police brutality, wrongful arrest. Well, there's systematic cover-up, because what they're doing is there's a cause in the city's agreements that prohibits any public statement about the incident that triggered the lawsuit. The limitations on public statements shall include a prohibition in discussing any facts or allegations with the news media, except to say the lawsuit has been settled. Otherwise, they can take back half or more of the settlement. So what they're doing is the legal system's working hand in hand with authority to use leveraged payoffs to cover their own asses. Because you basically have the authority of the police do something completely wrong you know, they wrongfully arrest somebody, they mistreat somebody, uh, racially profile them. There's an incident, the person complains. Normally what should happen? There should be an investigation. The cop should probably be fired, maybe charged himself. The system should be looked at. We should see what caused that. What do we do instead? Well, we offer this person $50,000 and say, well, you have to sign this piece of paper that says you can't talk about it and we don't admit any wrongdoing. You're poor. So $50,000 to you might be like two or three years worth of work for you. That's money you can't say no to. On the other hand, now we don't have to admit any wrongdoing. We get to whitewash it under the table. Hundreds of beatings and wrongful arrests and gross misallegations of police conduct just swept under the rug. This is just one city. Mm -hmm. One city over a few years. So it shows you how systematic it is because everything's working hand in hand, the bureaucracies to protect each other. Right? Yeah. 
Without question, and, and, it, and it spills over in the in the in the business. That's how businesses conduct themselves. But you know, you really said it about coming down to poverty, right? About money, you know, and, and that's a big, big challenge with our legal system and the way it's set up. You get the best defense money can buy. Get the best defense money can buy. So, so if you're rich, you might get away with murder. If you're poor, you might get a fifty dollar a freaking case lawyer. You're gonna get a fifty dollar case lawyer right and 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 back in uh I, I can't exactly remember when it was uh as far as the dates were concerned but i think it was the 50s that that in in, in like georgia and mississippi that 50 dollars a day lawyer if you couldn't afford a lawyer was actually trying capital punishment cases hmm. <laughs> for 50 dollars a case i mean seriously with fifty dollars a case going up against this, the, all the, the state's money with the with the district attorney, yeah, a, bo a bottomless pool of money, a bottomless pool. Well, I mean, they're going to get what they're going to get, right? But you, like you hit the nail on the head. So it comes, and then you have, you have an impoverished community that that feels like they have no hope, right? Already to start with, who's been hyper criminalized just by the color of their skin and where they're treated when they go to schools. Um, when they get patted down all the time, stopping frisks in New York, um, running from the police and getting chased down uh, and getting arrested, rough rides, this, that, and the other. Feels like the disparity, uh, you know, from, um, like you said, in Ferguson, in those cases that, that they do exist. I think that Baltimore is, is, is obviously a little bit more balanced and actually the scale, like you said, is tipped on the side that the minority um, of the country actually is the majority in the, in the department. So that's, to me, it seems like an anomaly. Um, but the race thing is still, it is still involved, but it really does come down to the downtrodden and the oppressed and the, in the impoverished. And the fact that rioting and looting is the voice of the unheard. Is, did Martin Luther King say something like that? He did say that. I, I think it was from a quote, just to put it in context, where he was against rioting, but he was trying to explain it. Trying to explain it. He was trying to explain and it. And even, even Donald Rumsfeld in 2003 said that uh, rioting and looting is a, is a path to freedom. But obviously he was not talking about this country. It was okay, it's, okay when, when, it's okay if Iraq does it after we break it, but it's not okay if black people do it. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but so... The fact of the matter is, is whether you're against it or not, it is a, a tool to raise awareness. It, it's not, I'm not condoning burning down CVSs and buildings and, no, and, never. and this, that, and the other. But you have to understand where it comes from. If you can stop for a second and get over the fact that this shouldn't be happening, which we can all agree, this should not be happening. But why is it happening what is the source and jump over that hurdle and your emotional response to the burning of the buildings and the looting of the stores and start to feel what these people feel on a daily basis empathize with them just for a second take yourself out of the shoes and when they talk about white privilege or this that and the other get over the fact that you don't feel privileged Get over the fact that you don't feel privileged and that you feel like it's like, oh, they're thinking that we had it so easy. That's not the case. But there's a level of struggle that goes on in America. And some struggle, and it's a hard struggle to come from the middle class. But imagine if you're born into a situation where it 
feels hopeless from the beginning and you've been criminalized from the years of, I don't know, eight or nine years old possibly. You hit the nail on the head. It's about empathy. And it's very difficult, I think, for a lot of people, especially people who are in a secure job. They grew up in, a, you know, there's a big difference between growing up in a lower middle class neighborhood in Irvine as opposed to growing up in the mean streets of Compton or, or Baltimore. There's a big difference. So I think everybody has this problem of they always look at things from reference of their own experience. Real empathy is completely disregarding your own experience and putting yourself in the shoes of the other. And I think it's very difficult for people to visualize what it would be like if every day of their entire life they woke up in a house that was a tiny apartment with water that wasn't hot and didn't run, electricity that might not be on, eating rice roni every night for dinner, parents that might not be around, shootings in the street, drug dealings going on nearby, everyone around you is doing the exact same thing. If you could put yourself in the mindset of what it's like to be there survival, every single day, your entire life, you don't even have a perception that there's another life that's possible for you. Mm-hmm. That's why there's this big Fox argument that conservatives love to make where they do the anecdotal argument of, well, look at this person. They made it out. You know, uh, hard work. They got the scholarship. It's very anecdotal because we know for a fact not everybody can jump from being in this position of systematic degradation for almost a century to the top of the American food chain. There's not a system in place to educate, culturalize, and socialize that many people that fast. So you can't say, well, if one person should do it, everybody else should just decide to be like that. Mm -hmm. You have to put tools and prisms and structures in place that are going to make it possible for more people to reach that. Because there's a reason that only one out of 100 people are doing it in the inner city, but 50 out of 100 people are doing it in upstate Massachusetts. Right. You know, there's different structures and systems in place that make it a lot more capable and possible. So when you empathize, you really, really need to understand that you don't understand. Because that's what, what I tell myself. I can visualize what it might be like, but no matter how hard I think about it, I don't know what it's like. Man, listen, I was a recruiter in Philadelphia, and I was in this uh, town called Fishtown. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of row homes and things on the East Coast. But I was in this house, man, and I, I shit you not that you could go to the second floor, third floor, and look down through holes in the floor that went all the way down to the to the uh, to the the first floor. The walls didn't have the plaster on them anymore. It was just those wood slats. And I've heard stories of people in the, in, a, in a depressed area of Philadelphia called Kensington that have fire barrels in the middle of the freaking first floor living room because they don't have any freaking heat. And they live in Philadelphia. They have fire barrels. They're freaking warming themselves in fire barrels and this type of things. And then. You know, and then all the the kids grow up like this, and it's it's their reality. It's their reality. You have to understand that there's different realities that go on in society, and some people's reality is a hopeless, scary, impoverished, oppressed feeling place. I mean, they don't have the 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 they don't have the family structures in place to 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 keep people uh you know engaged and moving forward education isn't really uh stressed upon because um you know the education system probably isn't very good in the uh public school systems and you know maybe they have to leave school to try to make some money 
because it costs to live. And you know, the other thing is, is that everybody, the other argument is like, oh, you know, uh, social programs and the, and the welfare and you know, this, that, and the other, and all of our tax dollars are going to that. Well, you know what? 51% of your tax dollars goes to making drones and bombs and security and stuff like that. And not very much actually makes it down to the quote unquote welfare queens. Yeah, I mean, and also you build this concept of where you make the public almost feel regretful that they're in this position. There's nothing worse in America than to be poor. Nothing worse. Nothing worse. This, this is a country where it's about money more than anything. So it's almost shameful to be poor. So this is what people don't understand. They see homeless people begging for money and they're like, these people disgust me. You know, like... like they're doing nothing, just sitting there asking. Most of them have mental illness. Asking for handouts. I can understand what they're saying to a degree because it's like, yeah, this person isn't working any harder. Are there people that suck off the system? Yeah, no, for sure. But I'm saying I can see it from one shoe that, yeah, this person isn't doing anything. They're literally like, sit here and give me money. And hopefully by you giving me money, that's going to fix the situation, which it won't. But just think for a second. I don't like the feeling of when I have to borrow 20 bucks from a friend. Borrow. Right. I don't like that feeling of borrowing money. To what you have to do to yourself, to your pride, to your ego, to beg for change on the streets, it's one of the most humiliating things I can imagine possible. Yeah. You're, you're literally putting yourself at the charity of strangers to get you your next fix or to get you food. Literally, you're, you're on the ground with a sign begging for random people to throw coins at you. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a very humiliating thing. And conservatives have somehow painted this into a way to be like, look at this terrible example of humanity. I see this more of like a, you know, a depressing, dep depressing example of humanity, of what could be and what the situation is where somebody feels like that's their only recourse. They don't have the means to be like, you know what, I'm homeless, I'm broke. I can go to the shelter, then get this job training, then there's this program that can help me. I know these these systems and structures are in place to help me get back on my feet. They're like, nope, there's no structures, there's no hope. The only thing is, is the charity of strangers in coin form to maybe get me another fix. And some of those people are never, I mean, they might be broke. They might be broken. They can't yeah, be fixed. I mean, they're never get, they're never, never going to come back. But you know, they, there are people that don't want to be poor and that want to work and that want to do things for themselves. But you know, let's bring it back to Freddie Gray. And you know, did, I mean, did, we did, are talking about this depressed area um, of Baltimore and the fact that this is where this comes from. And this is where these, these, these riots and these violence comes from is this rage. Yeah. I mean, the reason we were tying in the homeless thing, or at least I was, is just that it's systematic of how we treat problems and situations is that we always want to blame the victim. You know, yeah. when, when this Freddie Gray thing happened, you, you had the classic situations. You've had conservative think tanks going, oh, uh, you know, look at his arrest record. Because the guy's a known drug dealer. He's got dozens of arrests for possession and, and distribution, which obviously means he deserves to die, right? He's a drug dealer. You've got other people saying, oh, you know, it could have been, uh, uh, there's a story that he tried to injure himself. <laughs> he's trying to injure himself, you know, he's trying to hurt himself in that. All this time spent on literally making the victims the people we need to worry about. Instead of worrying about the people being oppressed, we're worried about the oppressors. We don't want the cops to get railroaded. Oh, you know, no one's going to want to sign up for law enforcement. 
instead of they have about, a hard job. So you know they leave their families every day and put their lives on the line. Exactly. So like it, the focus of these people is crazy to me because they're so worried about victimizing, make, it, taking the victim and turning them into the point of contention when that's what the focus of the story should be on. So I mean, I wanted to throw this quote at you because I thought this was uh, interesting. I always like to see what the other side has to say. Because mm -hmm. I don't think you can be balanced unless you know all the opinions. You could read nothing. We're fair and balanced on this station. Fair and balanced. You could read everything and you're gonna be biased no matter what. But you can do your best by at least being like, you know what, I'm gonna get my news from multiple sources and get multiple points of view. So at least I have a better idea of what people think about this. So one of my favorite assholes, Bill O'Reilly, of course <laughs> had, to, had to pitch in. And Bill O'Reilly's great because he always is able to have his writers put together some talking points where he toes the line so carefully between like upholding some good value and then just and like very, very subtle inflammatory racism. So he, here, here's the quote. It's from one of his recent talking points. I want to hear your feedback. So here, here's the quote. I want to see it typed out on the teleprompter next to your head while you say it like it comes out on his show. I'll, I'll try to Just say to it. drive it home. I'll say, I'll say it like Bill O'Reilly. I'm going to put on my Bill O'Reilly voice here, and I'll, I'll read it in Bill O'Reilly voice format for you as well. <coughs> okay. The rioters are angry because America is a country of mass incarceration. People who burn down buildings and loot are just misdirected folks who feel hopeless. And if you feel hopeless, it's okay to riot. You see, it's not really the fault of those who commit crimes. It's the fault of America because we don't provide jobs for everyone. Well, here's the truth. How can anyone provide a job that pays a decent salary to someone who can barely read or write? To somebody who can't speak English? To somebody that has tattoos all over their body, who's defiant, disrespectful, and who doesn't even want to work because they have a sense of entitlement that says they're victims and you owe me. End quote. That was the Papa Bear, Bill O'Reilly. Your thoughts, Max? Oh, dude. When you were reading that, I, I, I just was like envisioning like, like, uh, like Brave New World. <laughs> like, like, like I was listening. I was listening. To that was like World the that on, was the Mustafa speaking audio book, right? I was listening to audio book last week, and uh, that's exactly what I was thinking. Is like how they're the epsilons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. the, the voice of the authority telling you what's right and what's wrong. Is the help is the base. I man, don't the like gamas. khaki. Ew. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was a decent impression, personally. I, that's, I, that's, how Bill, that's how Bill usually reads his talking points. I thought it was excellent. I thought it was excellent. Here's what I, here's what I took from that. So he blames the fact that they can't read, they can't write, they have tattoos, um, they don't have any order, respect for authority or order. And, but he doesn't think about why they can't read, write, speak exactly. English, have tattoos, the or have failure tattoos. of the education system. Hey, they just—they they, 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 cho they, they chose. They, they, they chose to not be able to read, write, speak English. Right, because that's know? what they want to do. They don't want to be educated. People just choose not to be smart. Hey, when they were babies, they knew they'd grow up and have tattoos on their faces. That's yeah, what all, that's what all babies want. Yeah, they're like, I want teardrops, please, and um, upside down crosses on my neck. Yeah, I want a whole bunch of stuff yeah. going on. God's son. So for me, that, that was Bill O'Reilly doing, like I said, blame the victims. I mean, God dang. Blame man. the think victims. Of, blame of, the victims. Blame, blame the, the victims. victims. He d d oh, well, it's okay for uh, 
for uh, for those who commit crimes, uh, you know, to, to get away with them. Well, wait a minute. Officers can commit crimes. Yeah. I mean, we have officers all the time who, um, you know, get busted, uh, you know, with with uh, with the with drugs, right? Uh, doing deals with drug dealers and things like that, and we and we freaking fry those guys, right? But then they kill somebody, and we want to defend the hell out of them. And so that's what I don't understand. I mean, talking about spinning something around the no spin zone, no spin. Are you kidding me? I call it flat spin. Like, dude, you got that thing. <laughs> it's a knuckleball. It is freaking. It's a knuckleball. It's, it's like so, it's moving. It's barely moving, but it's moving a little. It's a knuckleball, right? <laughs> you can't quite put your finger on it. You're like, that's fucked up. And I can't believe this is coming out of this guy's mouth right now. I mean, what kind of talking about? Telling people how to believe about a whole section of of society. Telling them they don't want to work. They don't want to do this. You haven't asked them what they want or what they don't want. How do you know and why are you saying it with such freaking emphaticness that you're driving it home as this is the truth? And he even says in the middle of his statement... Here's the, truth. The truth. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. These motherfuckers are uneducated. They do not want to make it out of America. You know what? They just want to smash shit and steal sneakers. But like I said, the amazing thing about Bill O'Reilly, somebody I've followed for many years because I love to hate him. You just can't, it, what he does is brilliant. It's brilliant conservative trolling at the highest level is that they walk that tightrope where they make salient points hidden under the guise of subtle racism. Because what he says is true. He goes, here's the truth. How can you provide a job with a decent salary to someone who doesn't read, write, speak English, has tattoos, and is disrespectful? True. He's right. You can't. You can't. I'm 100% with you, Papa Bear. Yep. You're spot on. But I want to look underneath that and say, okay, why do we have entire cities that are predominantly filled with people who can't read, write, speak English, have tattoos? All these things you claim are problematic. <laughs> what, what, what's Again, going on here? The symptom. Or even before that, he says that he thinks the root cause is that people are ultimately, especially in these poor communities, it's entitlement, he thinks. He feels that Americans feel they're entitled to jobs, whether they have the skills or not. People don't feel entitled to the jobs. They feel entitled to the opportunity. Yes. Because America was billed to them as the land of opportunity. Which they tout all the time. They espouse America, the land of the opportunity, the greatest nation ever but they inhabit the earth. They, they love the Fox conservative and Randian complex of everybody has opportunity. No, the no, same. no. Everybody has the same capabilities and capacities. If one, what one man can do, another man can do. So there's this antidote where this guy made it out. Of, he, he had a terrible life and drug addicted mother. But guess what? He worked hard and he went to Harvard and now he's a CEO worth a hundred million. If he can do it, you can do it. Theoretically, yes, that's true. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. I was going to be like, yeah, everybody does have the same capabilities. And capacity. No, no, hey, everybody, everybody potentially could get there, but we're lying to ourselves if we say everyone mentally is capable. Like, it, it, could they get there in theory? Yes. In reality, no. Well, no, listen. No, most of the people in the community, they don't have the education, the socialization, the cultural perceptions to make the moves necessary to move themselves along the ladder to get to there. So we're at a place literally where you've got fast food workers petitioning and threatening to strike 
to get a livable wage. And instead, the flip side is, well, guess what? You get paid what the market determines. You should get a second job. Or guess you should do some more skilled labor. What skilled labor? You just said these people can't read or write all these things. So you're basically saying, look, because the system's been designed in a way where you're doomed to failure, you should just be happy we allow you to have a role. You should be right. happy to be Brave New World. You should be happy to be an Epsilon. Exactly. Except in Brave New World. They created that. In Brave but New World. we created it? In Brave New World, it's an interesting thing. Uh, one of my favorite books of all time by Aldous Huxley, Future Dystopia, where technology is used in a way to enslave humanity to itself. And one of the things they do is that they literally grow people instead of give birth to them. And because of that, there's distinct class separation. There's alphas, betas, gammas, deltas, epsilons. The alphas have the main role of society, all the hubbard and stuff. The epsilons have the lowest. But in this perfect system, you're conditioned since birth through a series of science, technological things, drugs they put in your incubator, things they play and repeat, to love what your role is. So they teach you to love to be a garbage cleaner if that's your role as an epsilon. You're literally mentally treated in a way and conditioned to a way where this is what you want and this is what you're happy with. The problem with our current society is we, the epsilons want to be alphas. Everybody wants to be alphas. But there's no conditioning system to make them happy to be epsilons, gammas, betas. Everybody wants to be an alpha. And we're like, no, you're an epsilon. You should be happy to be an epsilon. Exactly. Maybe if you work hard, you can be a delta, but you'll never be an alpha. Right, right. Well, here's what I was going to say. If we're going to go with that same logic, then wouldn't we be like, everybody that comes from the middle class could be Steve fucking Jobs. Yeah. If, hey, if you just wanted to be Steve Jobs. Because you know what, white hey, America, middle class, you're failing too. And that's the anecdote of it. Guess what? We only hear about the success stories in this country. It's a very, very funny thing how we massage it. Guess what? Let me tell you a quick anecdote, which is based on factual truth. 99.9% of actors who go to Hollywood are never heard of. You'll never hear their name. There are literally 100,000 people a year who go to Hollywood, become a star. Maybe 5 to 10 of them become a star each year. 1% of 1%. Well, you're not hearing about the 99,995. You know, 99, You'll hear about the five stars. So we have this perception of success as being so attainable. If you just want it enough and we're doing the right things, you'll be successful. Yeah. Well, guess what? These other 99,995 actors, they're going to the same acting classes. They have the same dream. If you talk to them about it, they'll tell you they want it just as much. They'll work just as hard. They'll do anything. Well, guess what? There's not room the way this world's built for that many people to be that successful. There's a reason we can't all be Steve Jobs. The world's not designed for everybody to be able to achieve extraordinary success. It's designed to only allow a few people to. Yep. So the question is, do we sacrifice the ability of a few to achieve extraordinary uh, success? at the expense of the masses to forever be stuck with literally very low achievements. But I would argue it's this, a trade -off. if you raise the bottom, think of the achievements that we could make at the top. You're right. If we started from a more elevated place of what baseline was of society, then think about how far we could grasp as far as innovation and, 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 and the betterment of society and those type of things would happen at the top level. You are so spot on, Matt. I mean, I, I just want to end it with this one thought and then I'll, I'd like to hear your closing thoughts. But uh, that's where we need to go. 
is that we need to understand that by helping everyone, we're helping ourselves. There's this Anne Randian theory, which I'm completely opposed to, and I will debate it to the death, where she promotes this theory of selfishness that only by being selfish do we improve society because there's going to be no... Her theory is that creativity is stifled by shared, uh, shared values and shared effort because why would I want to do anything? Why would I want to start a company, take a risk, invent a product if there wasn't an incentive in it for me? This disgusts me at the core of who I am. And I'm not saying inventors and businessmen don't deserve more credit. I think they totally do. I think if you start a company, you deserve more, more money than your employees. Maybe not a hundred times as much, but you deserve more. But it undercuts at what I think was the core of what makes people amazing is that we care about each other. We have a shared empathy for one another. If I could create a great product that would make everybody's lives better and I didn't make any money off of it, I mean, it'd be better if I did, but I'd still feel great about it. I'd still have total incentive to improve the world and the lives of everyone around me. I don't need to personally benefit in every situation. And that's what cuts to the core of it for me is this way of thinking where I can't do anything good for a society unless it benefits me as well. Mm-hmm. So like you said, if we make it better for the people at the bottom, then the people at the top are in a position to do even more and achieve even greater things. Now you've got the public behind you. You've got people who are better off, more intelligent, working together more. You can achieve even greater heights and greater things. Your success doesn't have to be measured in your stock price or how much money you have, but instead of what you've done to improve the world, which is tangible. We can actually see it and feel it and everyone knows it. So I'll I'll, I'll leave my thoughts up there because I know I went off the deep end, but that's what I think about that. I love it. I love it though because you know it really does go back to the fact that why are we blaming the victims in these situations? Why can't we get over the fact that there is looting and burning and try to get to the core of where this this uneasiness, this unhappiness, this sorrow, this this loss of hope, this hopelessness comes from? And I think that's what you were getting at is like saying how can we uplift these people? What kind of systems do we need to put in place to create a pathway of opportunity not a pathway to free not free jobs not this not this bullshit superficial talking points that people make how can we really create avenues of opportunity for people to elevate themselves and to 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 get out of these situations and to um you know better themselves because not everybody people don't want to be poor everybody wants to be rich that's the truth mm-hmm. so yeah i mean he, he was a drug dealer ultimately why why did he re, why did he go to drugs like we said because if, he make money if, if we eliminated the illegality of drugs in this country it would undercut the legal system so bad i don't think it could ever recover right so that's why that hasn't happened yet true but we all know it should happen yeah without question so yeah it's about money and drugs are about money. Yeah. You're talking about people. Who- this is the avenue of opportunity. You understand? This This is the avenue of opportunity. This is what we're talking about. Look at Jay-Z. That's just what I was thinking. Hey. I mean, my goodness. He stood on the stage with the President of the United States. America, what did Hunter S. Thompson used to say? Fear and loathing Las Vegas. In the land of the criminal, the only crime is getting caught. Yep. So guess what? If you're a drug dealer and you get arrested, you piece of shit drug dealer. If you're a drug dealer and you don't get arrested, 
Look at this baller popping bottles in the club. We need to be like this guy over right, here. Right. Oh, oh, he can rap too? We should celebrate him. That's awesome because he got away with it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We, re- we reward people for doing the same thing for, fl- for flaunting their ability to cheat the Listen, system. Listen, if we don't create avenues of opportunity, then they'll be created by themselves, dictated by the environment in which they are created. And what happens is those are the avenues of opportunity and it's the only way out. Sports, drugs, music, music. I I think you pretty much hit hit it on the head with those three. And very, very, very few through education because somehow, some way they're able to navigate the horrid education system that's in place for them. I mean, there's actually a lot that do it, but from a percentage, it's not a lot. Yeah, for right? a percentage, right. For a percentage, right, exactly. it's not. Exactly. So I think that we, uh, you know, spun this all the way around um, the no spin zone here on the Material Devolution podcast. Uh, we want to thank uh, Mr. Bill O'Reilly for his uh, quote, his contribution. Oh, yeah. I got, got to thank the Papa Bear. Uh, hopefully, I'll get to role play him a little bit more in the future. If we ever need an episode, we literally could just do an episode where I read Bill O'Reilly's talking points. And then we laugh and vivisect everything he said. And if you want the truth, come to the Material Devolution Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to all our sponsors. Shout out. Thank you to Devin for joining me here again today. I got to go run and shoot this commercial. Thank you, Matt. Much love, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you soon. Bye.